This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. And welcome to a special Chelsea Flower Show edition of Talking Dirty. We're fresh back from press day. We've digested all of our photos. It does come around quickly when you have a Chelsea Flower Show in September as well, though it was kind of reassuring, Alan, to be surrounded by bearded irises and poppies and babascums and peonies and all those things that we associate with Chelsea. I don't know if you agree. I do. It felt very comfortable. It felt like snuggling into a very familiar quilt, I think. (laughs) Um, but however, I have to say that there are a few things that um, the likes of you and I, who are seasoned professionals, shall we ch- say, Chelsea Flower. Be for yourself. Well, um, you know, you do get a char- uh, You do get the feeling, and I think this has come through in various journalist writings in recent years of a, that there is a sense of here we go again, because, and I know to a certain extent. Um, The seasonality dictates the colour palette and the choice of plants. But I do feel that there could be a little bit more experimentation um, and a little bit more thinking outside the box, perhaps. However, you know, for some people, they will absolutely adore the palette that late May gives, including, you know, roses, foxgloves, irises, of course, um, and all the other kind of things that we're so used to. And it was beautiful. And as you can well imagine, from the pavilion to the show gardens to the sanctuary gardens, we have picked up lots of inspiration. This podcast is obviously all about the plants. So we're going to kind of pick our way through all of those. I'm sure if you're watching this, you know all about us, by the way, but I suppose we should do introductions over at East Ruston Old Vicarage. In a pinstriped affair today, going for a navy theme, we have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist. And in a wonderful jungle in Norwich, we have Thordis Maria Sophia Fredrickson looking absolutely fabulous. The eyebrows look great, by the way. <laughs> you phoned me while I was putting my eyebrow pencil on. There you go. There's a, a little behind the scenes set up. We are real people. <laughs> um, you know, talking of Alan's outfit, before we get stuck into all of the Chelsea chat, the plants and, of course, our best in show, we should talk about the thing that had everybody gossiping and rolling up to Alan full of praise. And that was your outfit, dear man. Oh, goodness gracious me. Yeah. And <laughs> it's, it was one of those strange things that I bought and I've never worn. Uh, well, I may have worn it once, actually, um, but it is it, it's a coat suit. So what you actually get, I mean, it's, 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 it was designed to be a springtime affair. So you've got a linen coat, which was beige and grey stripes, if you like. But it's cut in such a way that it looks rather more flamboyant than it really is. <laughs> and high-waisted striped matching trousers. Um, and it, uh, yeah, it stood out, I suppose. But I mean, it didn't stand out to the extent that, um, shall we say, Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen stands out. I mean, he's, he's well, very colourful. It didn't stand out in the way that you have in former years with fluorescent orange shoes. No, it didn't. It was uh, yeah. Sir Nicholas Bacon who we bumped into. He said he's normally got his head on the floor trying to spot Alan by his colourful footwear. Accompanied <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by purple socks, I, I heard him say. <laughs> Do you know, one of the lovely things I think at Chelsea, I was obviously besotted with the plants, but it was such a treat to catch up with lots of people. I missed tons of people like Dan Cooper and Jimmy Blake. We kind of waved across the crowds, but we didn't get yeah. to talk to him. Klaus Dalby, 
It was wonderful to see him in real life over from well, he Denmark. Was, he was lapping it up, wasn't he? Oh. I mean, absolutely, absolutely just loving it. And he, I mean, I loved the way he looked at plants. We were talking uh, only briefly because he wanted to take it all in. Um, and he actually said, look, look at this combination here. Isn't it fabulous? I would never use it, but isn't it fabulous? Yeah. And I think that's the way to look at Chelsea. Not to say, well, I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you say you you analyze it and think, does it work? Doesn't it work? And if it works, admit that it works, even though it isn't your cup of tea. It doesn't yeah. matter. Uh, we also saw the lovely Lucy Chamberlain from the Talking Heads podcast with Saul. We missed Saul, sadly. Loads of people and a real highlight to swing by the surreal succulents stand to see more. Oh, Dan. oh, wonderful, wonderful yeah. plants. And of course, they now have the accolade of plant of the year. Yes, they do. I mean, this fantastic, fantastic um, symponium. What <laughs> destiny, wonderful symponium. Yeah, absolutely fabulous. I bought two um, because I, well, i tell you why I bought two. Um, not that I'm greedy, I'm a liar. Um, <laughs> it is just the fact that they, this symponium, they had it in, they were showing it. Um, there were two, two or three plants on the stand, but they showed it in a mixed planting, which is where I first saw it with other succulents, which is lovely in a beautiful flat bowl. And what a lovely thing to do. If you've only got a small garden or a terrace or, you know, whatever, a small bowl of succulents stood out for the summer is fantastic because they they don't require watering every day. I mean, you do, if you put some, a tray of bedding plants that you'd have to water it every day succulents don't need that treatment in fact they would hate it so you know it's a lovely way to as, especially as our climate is changing rainfall is getting less you know why not go go with the flow um symponiums i, symponiums, I think are the, the way forward because they've been crossed uh well they've crossed a sempervivum with um an aeonium and they've got hardy aeonium like plants which are what which is what symponiums are yeah um, and I bought two because I wanted them to be in, I see, I love pairs of things. I mean, it's like decorating a mantelpiece, a pair of candlesticks, you know, a pair of jugs, a pair of vases. I love pairs of things. And when I'm sort of put, putting symponiums and aeoniums and other succulents on stands, I quite like to sometimes add a bit of formality to it. I mean, a collection looks wonderful, but a pair of something, and then the pair of something else, then a pair of, it's, it, it kind of elevates it to exterior decorating. <laughs> I'm trying to do that as a little aside and um, because I have this pair of pots either side of my front door um, and normally they're quite high maintenance so I'm trying succulents this year but I'm terrified of doing matching pairs because every time I do that one of them dies so I've got <laughs> sunburst aeonium sunburst on one side and aeonium kiwi on the other side and I've paired one of them with Schwarzkopf and one of them with another dark one so that we've got you know, sort of matching, but not actually matching. And I'm hoping that will insulate me against the dreaded death. <laughs> now, what you're telling me is that you shouldn't have bought two. You should have bought three in case. <laughs> <laughs> my um, my little destiny is over there and I'd go and get it, but I'm kind of trapped in by my little table. But um, I'm so excited because this, this wonderful Semponium, it's such a rich, dark colour. And when it catches all the sun... It's going to colour up amazingly and wonderful, well, big, luscious about, leaves. This is the thing about in the winter, they quite often the, the colour, because of the lack of daylight and the lack of light levels in general, the colour drains from them and they go this dull greeny kind of look. Um, and I bought at the uh, October Chelsea Flower Show, I bought, or September, whenever it was, I can't remember, um, it, I bought Sienna, which yeah. was the only one on sale at the time, a Semponium. Um, and it looked 
Well, kind of, it was a little bit of um, rustiness in the in the in the leaf, but that soon disappeared. And I thought, oh, have I got a pig in a poke? You know, have I bought a putt? Um, no, I haven't. It is um, it is gloriously colouring up, and it's outside with the others um, on my succulent stands, and it's looking absolutely fantastic. We should give some other notable mentions to stunners on the uh, the surreal succulent stand. And if you haven't watched, I think it was episode seventy four, a two parter, where Mark and Dan explained some ponies and introduced us to the whole range and talked about loads of other wonderful succulents. Do go catch that. We'll link to it in the video version. Um, but they also had some fabulous agaves and. I think, you know, if I'm not careful, I could spend a lot of money on agaves and I really don't have anywhere to put them. Uh, agave univitata quadricolor, which seems to be hardy to minus 10 if you give it good drainage, like so many of these plants. And that was fabulous, like wonderful variegated thing. Um, also agave victoria regine, if you say it like that. <laughs> which I, I, like. I mean, everybody understands regine, regine, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just absolutely show-stopping plants and the aeonium green tea which is a much smaller you know lots of clusters of smaller aeonium rosettes and uh sort of dripping over the edge of one of their planting bowls just absolutely loved it just a wonderful stand isn't it alan it was and i think one of the there's two things that i like about it first of all they grow the very flat table aeonium uh aeonium tabuliformi and they actually show show it the growing out of the side of a container so that it is on the vertical so the rosette is on the vertical um which i think is very important because where it actually naturally grows on the canary islands that is how it grows and it grows like that so that the, the moisture doesn't sit in the crown and and get and cause it to rot which i think is very important and it gives you ideas for, for planting these things outside in in the garden I mean, if you can make, a, if you haven't got um, an area where you can plant them on the horizontal, if you can make some kind of raised bed or rockery um, and then make sure that the soil behind it is exceedingly well draining, um, you should be OK to keep them through the winter very, very easily. Because the one thing they don't like is wet roots in the winter. And if you keep the roots as dry as possible, that will help. Well, I, top tip, I've ended up with two now because I bought one and then we have been tasked by Surreal Succulents. If you don't follow yeah. on social media, um, on Instagram in particular, uh, at Get Gardening Now, they've given us this grow off. They mentioned it in the podcast. I thought they were sending us a couple of things. We've got you know, 10 plants that Alan and I are supposed to go grow through the summer. Who I have no idea how I'm supposed to contend with Alan Gray, you know, the one and only, the inimitable. Oh, no, 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 <laughs> come on. Because I think, I think, you know, we can, these sort of plants, they're not, uh, they're not that fussy in, in how, how we treat them and everything else. I mean, I'm, I'm treating mine as I, as I treat all my succulents. Um, and, you know, really that is that. Um, but I think the thing is that, you know, what we've got to realise is that with this gift comes great responsibility because you know, this is the worrying thing, if you like, because somebody's gifted you. I mean, it's not the value, which I have to say is quite high um, because some of the plants are exceedingly rare. And I was talking to Mark and he said, well, we, have, we did include a couple of very rare ones. Um, and, <laughs> um, and, you know, I can see that, I mean, looking at their stand, I can see that lots of the plants that they've got available are going to be sold out. So oh, I advise yeah. anybody that, you know, if you can if you can get them, get them when you see them, because um, the popularity is such that um, it's marvellous. I thought it was quite interesting because when I went back during the evening, thought this, you know where they'd had all their little plants for sale? Well, Dan said, I thought I'd better clear that off because, you know, otherwise 
you know, in all the hubbub, people could literally be slipping them into their handbags and all the rest <laughs> of it. Um, and so they cleared the, the sales, the plants for sale away and just left the bare table there. And when I left, it was covered. I mean, I mean covered literally in empty champagne glasses. <laughs> Thumbs up, surreal succulents, really. <laughs> and the amount of fun we had at their stand. Anyway, yeah. later in the summer, we'll see how the grow off has gone. And I think now that I've got two uh, tabula form there, I will try one out in the garden and try and plant it on its side and create like a tiny little rockery because I haven't got much space to play with. And then we'll keep another one in a pot so that I can demonstrate it for the grow off. So well, that's the other great thing about lots of these succulents. You don't need huge spaces. Yeah. You, and, you know, if you, you can be creative in your own way, the way you want to do it. But you, I mean, you know, they don't take up a huge amount of space. Yeah, until they get big. The other half still doesn't know how big some of them can get. We're keeping that on the down low. <laughs> uh, other pavilion highlights included the lovely people at Hoyland Plant Centre. This was one of my absolute best moments because they love watching and listening to this so much. So a big shout out to you wonderful people and all the clivia inspiration, Alan. We were like just drooling jaws on the floor at their clivias. I know, I know. It, 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 it was fantastic. Um, I, I love clivias. I've got quite a large collection and you know, you're talking about how big things get. Clippies get rather big too. And unfortunately, some of mine have got so large, I'm going to have to split them. Um, and I, I get, it, literally, it gets to the stage where I've got nowhere else to keep them. I mean, I, they, the great thing about them is they will tolerate low temperatures um, and they don't like huge amounts of light. Um, if you put them in too much bright light, the, the leaves um, bleach and they, they look rather unhappy. So I'm going to have to divide mine during the summer and hope that some of them live. And uh, I keep a few myself and the rest I will get, get rid of. But, you know, we all know what a clivia is. People tend to think a clivia is a clivia is a clivia. And they all used to be with orange flowers. And then they got sort of different shades of orange. And then a creamy lemon one appeared. Um, and now we have, in actual fact, a clivia, which is just beyond hoping for with green flowers. And I saw this on Hoyland's stand and I was utterly blown away by it. I was also blown away by, I think, Steve's pastel green throat, which is, in actual fact, the palest, palest sham, chamois, champagne. I don't know what, what, what you call it. It's a, like the colour of a dry chamois leather, kind of green. With a peachy flush, because I, yes. I was drawn to it, which means it must be in one of those sunset shades. Yep, yeah, exactly. And green throat with a green contrasting green throat, which is lovely. And then, of course, there was the, the green one that comes from Japan, which is called Hirao, Hirao, H-I-R-A-O. Um, and I love that. I just absolutely loved it. And I thought you can keep all your orange ones. I'll just have that one. That would be <laughs> enough. I'd be satisfied. It'd be absolutely lovely. Well, if you're getting rid of any clivias, Alan, you know a place that would like one. Uh, so uh, just put that out there. Um, I might surprise you and load your car up the next time you come over here, and then you'll you'll have the job of repotting them, not me. <laughs> it is worth saying that uh, people must wonder, all the plants we talk about, we both forget most of the plants that you say that you're going to send my way. It's not like my garden is just like absolutely cheek by jowl. I mean, I get about 80% of the things we mentioned. <laughs> But not quite all of them. Well, I have remembered that I promised you two nasturtiums. <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's very good. I had terrible nasturtium germination this year. Sad yeah. times. <laughs> and I can't think um, what else. But if we think of it during this podcast, I'm sure anyone who's watching or listening won't mind if we remind each other. <laughs> I am. Um, I've forgotten what the name was of that. Was it Baby Rose? That marvelous nasturtium that caught my eye in the pavilion. It was, I, it was Baby Rose. Oh, yeah. God, 
that was a yeah. you'd think from the name it was going to be really wishy-washy but it was punchy and eye-catching and marvelous so well i'll tell you something about nasturtiums because they they the the temperature and light levels do affect their color um, I went over to see Plants with Preference one uh, two or three years ago now, but I mean it was it was at the end of the season. We were talking and we we're talking about September, probably going into October, and he had the most lurid coloured nasturtium in a pot that he'd grown for the summer, and it was in actual fact a rose coloured nasturtium. But by the time I got there, it had gone green with um, kind of mahogany stripes, and it looked very very odd and very different. And I said, "Can I have a cutting?" He said, "Help yourself." Um, <laughs> I haven't got it anymore because it just went bright pink <laughs> when it came out the following year when we got through the winter with it turned bright pink and I didn't want that I wanted that lovely lurid color mm. but there is a pink one that I've grown here which is very similar to baby pink um in actual fact it's in a, an area in my front courtyard outside my window here and I get a few seedlings coming up every year and because it's it's kept apart from many other nasturtiums it doesn't get cross-pollinated so it comes through and it's one of those that weaves its way in between other plants and then suddenly pops up above your head it's lovely Oh, that is, I love the nasturtium, I really do. Um, heading back into the pavilion, the guys from Grow Tropicals, I do love it when someone comes in and does something really different at Chelsea. And they had, very on trend, brought in these amazing terrariums. They were like entire ecosystems, Alan, meticulously crafted <laughs> to recreate sort of cloud forest. And I don't know, what was it? The lowland rainforest of Borneo. I mean, limestone rainforest of tropical East Africa. That one featured that gorgeous Begonia Sutherlandii Saunders legacy, which you were completely besotted by, that wonderful little Begonia. Well, I was because my Begonia um, Sutherlandii um, is not a special one. It is just the orange one. Incidentally, that is hardy in a sheltered place outside in the wit throughout the winter if you keep it dry. Um, but for those that you don't know it, it's got quite a bright limeish green leaf. Um, small leaves, an abundance of orange single flowers. Doesn't really sound like much, but it's one of those plants that has the ability to grab your attention. So do look at it and look for it. Um, but their, theirs was a very special one because it had a much more serrated leaf than mine, but it was growing on a, on a rock face. Um, and this is how people find plants in the wild, like um, Streptocarpus, for instance, they grow in places, in places like this. And there's even uh, a petunia called Petunia exerta, which is a red flowered petunia, which comes from South America. Which you um, grow marvellously at East Russell. Yeah, I do. I do. And I got the seed from Derry Watkins, special plants. Um, but the thing about it is it grows in wet places where the, where, the, where the temperature is quite high, but it grows in wet places. And it has bright red flowers to attract the pollinators. And the pollinators are hummingbirds. Now, you know, we don't have them in England yet. <laughs> <What's this space? laughs> or parakeets. I mean, that's worth mentioning at the Chelsea Flower Show. If you've oh, yeah. been lucky yeah. enough to Grace Main Avenue, like it's quite extraordinary, you know, coming from, from Norfolk and Cambridgeshire to hear parakeets in the trees above you while you're looking at these flowers. <laughs> two things about those parakeets and, and the Main Avenue. And one is that the parakeets, they shriek and chirp and you don't really see them because they're in the trees. But the other thing that I find so awful is that all that um, that kind of um, what do you call it dust or something that comes from those plane trees. Oh, it gets yeah. up your nose and, and uh, you can't speak. Oh, <laughs> Take them out. <laughs> Grow Tropicals do look up their website. I went on it briefly last night and quickly came off it because they sell these wonderful uh, biodome type 
rectangular. How much are they? About four hundred pounds, I think. Well, um, you know, that's not an awful lot of money. I was telling, I was telling Graham about this because I thought this could be a wonderful thing to have in our back hall, which gets yes. muted, muted light. And I thought that I, I could see exactly where I put it. Um, I've yet to convince him because he says there's too much to go wrong with it. <laughs> But it's well worth looking because they talk about how well they've constructed them so that the water can get away and how well it's sealed so that it doesn't end up in your house. And, you know, how they... I've got a stone floor in there. That would mop up, all right. <laughs> Fans, I think, to create the right air circulation, it's, it's really clever. So if you're interested in that, if you just want a new project, a new challenge, well worth looking into it. Um, but moving on from there, Begonia Sutherlandiitis and other begonias that caught our eye. <laughs> of course, we had to walk past the Dibley stand, which I just ooh and are over every year. And I don't know. I well, just... Dibley's actually got a gold medal, didn't they? I mean, and it's, it, was, it was it was to be expected because you took one look at their stand and you just think, ah, this is all your favourite chocolates rolled into one laid out on a train. You don't know which one to pick. It was absolutely fantastic. It was a lovely looking stand. And even for people that don't like streptocarpus, and it surprises me the amount of people that don't, because as a summer flowering houseplant out of direct sun, I think they're exceedingly good value. And the the, the breeding is such that they, they flower for such a long time today. I mean, when Granny Gray was alive, she used to have a, a streptocarpus that used to come out and used to flower about three weeks, and that was the end of it. And my grandfather, I used to, he always called her mother, by the way. <laughs> he said, Mother, why on earth do you keep that plant? It's only flowers for about three weeks. Get rid of it and get something else. <laughs> but of course she didn't. <laughs> it's a marvellous stand. And um, it makes me realise that I obviously have some sort of begonia rex type love affair. Every I try not to buy them. I only have one. But Regal Minuet had those shiny leaves, um, silver changing to bright red, lovely black edge in centre. Uh, Namor, another Rex type with a spiral leaf and these rich satiny leaves. Helter Skelter, guess hey. what? Another Rex, uh, one of those that spirals round and round and has these wonderful large leaves with spots and splashes and a, a vibrant red background with all these lovely dark veining. Um, uh, that one was bred at Dibley's incidentally. The list just goes on, on and on and on. And it'll be interesting to see when I get my begonias out with all my coleus or whatever we're calling them now. Um, I think my patio is going to be like some sort of psychedelic 70s trip. <laughs> well, that doesn't matter, I don't think. But I mean, you know, I've got I've just put all my begonias outside together with some tender tree ferns. They're in my kitchen courtyard at the moment where they get a little bit of sun uh, first thing in the morning. And that's it then for the day. Um, but I'm going to plant them in, all in the garden because I did this a, a year or two ago when Christopher Lloyd first wrote about his um, well, several years ago now his um, exotic garden. And he was put, putting plants out like streptocarpus and, and house begonias that you have in your house. Um, and it's wonderful how the colour changes in some of them. I've got, I don't know what it's called, but it's a, it makes an enormous clump of these big curly leaves. And then these wonderful sprays of, of flowers. If they open in the house, they're the palest, palest pink. But you go outside and put them outside where the temperatures at night go lower and they suddenly turn shrimp pink. And it's, it's absolutely lovely. So I'm going to be doing a whole mess of that in the, in the coming weeks and just, you know, planting them out, mixing them with other plants. And I did it with Streptocarpus a few years ago, a species one called Streptocarpus saxorum, which is little blue flowers. And it lived outside for two years. Oh. It did eventually die, but I mean, you know, probably because it got overgrown. But you'd be surprised what happens, you know, when you experiment with things like that. 
Yeah. Um, there were so many amazing things, as ever, in the pavilion. Bowdens, their hostels were great. They were also accompanied by a TARDIS. So Doctor Who fans, something for you there. Um, and I mean, it's hard with hostels. I don't know a lot about them. And obviously there are certain similarities. Some of them can look similar. But then I think when one really speaks to you, it must mean that it's got something going for it. And we both stopped in our tracks we're like we like that one. And I like even more when I found its name, which was Wee! <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, talk about a plant that fits with its name. Just so fun with these kind of curly, twisted leaves and cream edges to the, the green leaves and a real frizzy look. And I looked it up and apparently it's fast growing as well. And I do like something that's fast growing. Well, I, I love that. I mean, that's WH and three E's, by the way. <coughs> it's it a could fun have an extra one. Should have had four or five, I think. <laughs> yeah, it could have gone on forever. Um, but I mean, suddenly I get inspiration from things like this as well, because we were talking, we were much looking at the, well, we've recently been talking about Hoster Empress Wu, because you had some leaves from me for a decoration that you wanted to do. Um, and Empress Wu, I mean, she must have been a big old bird, because this Hoster is the largest, most luscious thing you've ever seen. I grow it in pots here at the East Rustenau Vicarage. And the reason I grow it in pots is because it is so impressive, but in the ground, but elevate it into a pot and it becomes thrice, thrice as impressive. I mean, it really does. Um, but the, you know, the converse is what attracted me to this hostas on this stand because I started looking at the little ones, the, the miniature ones. We all know probably blue mouse ears, but there are umpteen and new varieties of little tiny hostas. And I suddenly thought these would look fantastic on a, a north facing theatre, like an auricular theatre. And Thordis turned to me and said, but you've got one, you've got, you've got ivies on it. Well, I did have ivies on it, but Ian has planted them in the garden in shady places because there was lots of lovely, interesting ivies like pink and curly, which has got curly leaves with a pink edge. Um, but, and I think I'm going to invest in some mini miniature hostas, which oh, I think. Oh, how lovely! <clears throat> to go near your potting shed. Yes. Oh, yes. Well, we can all look forward to seeing that. Yes. Another thing I think we can look forward to seeing at East Ruston was that fabulous delphinium we spotted at Home Farm Plants, exhibiting at Chelsea for the first time. And they brought along all of those wonderful delphiniums in palest blue and darkest blue and whites and doubles and singles and, you know, lovely. But then right in the middle, there was that showstopper pink one that I think you fell in love with, Alan. I did. It's, 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 Ruby Wedding was a wonderful name because it is a dark, dusky, moody looking purpley pink I suppose you'd call it really yeah. um we were talking to the guy on there and then he actually said you're not allowed to stake your plants when you're exhibiting them at Chelsea and I did feel sorry for him because uh <clears throat> if the if the wind had rushed through that door these spikes heavy I mean they're very heavy in um you know with their big heads of flowers they would have just been wrecked and I think this delphinium which I do want to grow um, and I did think that, that Ruby Wedding is going to need very careful sighting because if she needs to be somewhere where she's not in a huge draft. Um, and I think that maybe I wouldn't grow my Ruby Wedding quite to the exhibition standard that he had. Um, and you've got to face the fact that the delphiniums that you see in that display, fabulous as they are, I mean, breathtaking, beautiful, big, bold statements. You really wouldn't want them in the garden because they do. They are top heavy. And they're too liable to being messed around with by the weather. And I think that Ruby Wedding, I'd be quite happy, happy to have four stems on each plant um, for them to be less large. But the impact of that colour would still be absolutely fantastic. 
I think they had a bit of an incident there, didn't they? They did. I mean, talk about being lucky that the wind hadn't blown them over, but he came in first time at Chelsea, meticulously organised these delphiniums. They looked phenomenal and found little fox footprints all over his immaculate black fabric, you know, the show fabric. And a little fox had come wandering in and taken a tour through his stand and somehow hadn't knocked a single one over. (laughs) And obviously he had to get in there and get rid of all the the footprints. I think they should have left them. They should have put a little plaque up and included that as part of the display. But I don't think the judges would have quite agreed. (laughs) There's the thing about Chelsea. The rules are such that you, um, you have to have, I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're front, curtain if you like like the apron of your stand if that is crooked you'll get marked down for it i mean it's, it is that sounds to some people it sounds pathetic but that's the only way of maintaining the high standard of flower shows in particular the chelsea flower show yeah there were other things in the pavilion the kevok stand was breathtaking the combinations of jewel like colors just the usual mix of blue poppies that you know we from norfolk and you know cambridgeshire just go weak at the knees about such gorgeous different primulas in oranges and reds and dusky shades and yellows and they were all just popping and then smoky purpley corridalis in there as well i could have looked at it for hours well we did <laughs> well, almost almost i mean there were so many things i mean to, to, they are they come from north of the border um, and they have this wonderful, um, they have wonderful alpine plants. And there were some Lewisias there. I mean, we were, we were all probably uh, au fait with Lewisias that you see at the garden centre, which are normally in mixed colours, but some of the species ones, which I have to say are more difficult to grow. And again, rather like the um, Semponiums and Aeoniums, they like to be grown with very sharp drainage. So they like to be grown on the hut, as it were, or on a, on a not quite a vertical slope, but probably sort of a 90 degree slope. Um, and if you can do that, you can usually keep them through the winter. But the one thing they abhor is to have wet in their crowns at the uh, in the winter. And um, they had some fantastic Lewisias, but as well as that, there was a myriad of, I mean, so many different primulas that I'm not away with. And I can't grow here. I mean, it, I can just about get away with growing um, Primula japonica miller's crimson for instance and and the related ones of that but anything that demands extra moisture i mean forget it i just can't do it um and that, well you I, are thinking of making a stream alan gosh don't <laughs> <laughs> oh don't let that get out people will be <laughs> expecting it tomorrow <laughs> it's on the wish list mm. um talking of things on the wish list iris mrs alan gray <laughs> Who knew that was a thing? Wasn't it funny? <laughs> um, what's her name? What's Caroline her name? Holmes. Oh, Caroline came screeching through. She said, I've just seen your wife. I've just seen your wife. Come this way. And she grabbed me by the arm and off we went. Now, where is it? We went to the Grand Pavilion. Where is it? And we eventually found it. It was on the plant heritage stand. And there was uh, the lovely Lucy Skellon, who is looking, who is looking after the, um, well, it's, it's, her family's collection is the yeah. National Collection. So Michael Foster and the National Collection holder of irises, he introduced over 100 years ago, and there was a variety called Mrs. Alan Gray, and it was spelt correctly, A-L-A-N-G-R-A-Y, no messing. And <laughs> I thought, well, we know, why haven't I got this in the garden here? Because it's a superb talking point. What it is, it's an intermediate bearded iris. There's, there's nothing outstanding about it, really. Um, it's a reasonably small flowered, um, mauve, I suppose you'd call it, mauvey purple um, bearded iris. And, it, and 
intermediate means it's not too big either, because some of those rather large headed modern varieties, you do need to stake them because if you if they blow over and you're not there to pick them up straight away, they blow over and the flowers go up like that. Uh, which then when, when you pick them up, the flowers are on the, on the side, which looks ridiculous. Um, but I must have this in the garden. I, I said to Lucy, I must have this in the garden. Can I get some? And she's going to send me some. So that was lovely and extra fat. Um, I just felt suddenly that, do we need all these big, flat, modern hybrids? I know some people do, and I've got them in the garden here. But suddenly, I you know, you look at a plant that was... I don't know, bread 100 years ago, maybe, I don't know. Um, and it has all the grace and all the beauty there. Why spoil it by making it bigger and more voluptuous? It's a bit like somebody that's overdone the plastic surgery. And I won't mention any names, of course. <laughs> <laughs> worth saying, incidentally, the Plant Heritage Stand was lovely and it was drawing attention to several of their collection holders, but they also wanted to highlight the various genera that don't have anybody to look after them and have a collection of them, including Pittosporum, Festuca. So if you are somebody who would like to have a collection, if things like that float your boat, do go and look at the Plant Heritage website because you might be able to do a marvellous thing for Plant Heritage and for all the rest of us. And, you know, well, yes. you know, there's something to be said about that because um, we have a national plant collection here of Colchicums. And I did sort of, I, I, I only tentatively put my hat on and thought about um, Pittosporums because um, when we first started to garden here over 40 years ago, we wouldn't have dared plant a Pisporum outside because it would die in, in the winter. Today, they're self-sowing outside. So they set seed and scatter their seed and up pop all these babies. Um, some are more hardy than others, of course. The small leaf varieties tend to be hardier than some of the larger leaf varieties. But one thing did occur to me that if you were having a national collection, um, they could cross-pollinate and set seed and you get, could get different varieties which might be new but could it put your collection in a muddle I wonder <laughs> well maybe you'll <laughs> find out if you decide to host one pittosporums <laughs> I think that'd be a good home for them Thank um you. heading outside of the pavilion I mean it's amazing we've talked for goodness knows how long and we haven't actually touched on outside the pavilion yet though I think as time goes on I get most excited really about seeing all those marvellous plants on all the stands in the pavilion anyway but there was a lot to inspire us outside sanctuary gardens i feel like we didn't really get the time to do them justice because we kept talking to people <laughs> didn't really oh they kept talking to us though this <laughs> it's a two-way thing you know <laughs> i i just uh, i forgot to mention we bumped into the lovely rosie hardy as well and had a lovely chat yes. with her um it there's not enough time i need to be there all week really to take it all in but we did stop by tom hoblin's garden who of course were featured on talking dirty loves his plants and it was a marvellous garden he'd done for Boodles. I saw Dan Cooper, the frustrated gardener, say that if he could have taken any of the gardens home, it would have been Tom Hoblin's. If you wanted to transplant it into your own plot, you could just imagine sitting in there and having a refreshing glass of wine and just finding sanctuary. Well, that's the thing about Tom. I think his gardens are always so sociable because there's always a, a place to perch and a, and a place for a glass, which is so important if you're thinking of designing a garden when you want to use it outside. I mean, that, it, it, it's for using this garden, not just for looking at. So you need to have the space where you can actually go and sit and canoodle or drink or do whatever you want, you know, outside. I like canoodle was top of the list. The canoodle, <laughs> yeah. We'll have a canoodle and it makes a change, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I also liked his garden because he had my new favourite Podophyllum spotty dotty in there. 
Mm. So I had some more FOMO about that. Also, that lovely Salaginella, which was combining with Mind Your Own Business in this glorious carpet, just sort of nestling underneath everything. Well, I've seen that now, seen that used as it should be used, I think. I've got it and it's carpeting the, the, the bottom of um, our shrubs against the north, north facing wall. Um, and I think, again, there's been some doubt as to its hardiness, but it is an absolutely lovely thing. It's a, strictly speaking, it's a, it's a small fern, but it kind of creeps. It's like a cross between a moss and a fern. It, well, it looks like a moss on steroids, doesn't it, really? <laughs> but it is this lovely bright shade of green. And to get that as ground cover beneath shrubs in shady areas, especially if you've got a little bit of moisture, I just thought was such a lovely thing. And you suddenly think, yes. And, of course, merging with... Salaria, uh, everybody, everybody knows it. It's mind your own business. I've got it. Why do I've you got, think I didn't say the Latin name? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows how to say that? Yeah, well, it is. It's quite. A, it's a tough one. But mind your own business. It, it comes in three colours. Um, there's plain green. There's the cream variegated small leaf thing, and the lime green. And what I did once, in actual fact, I had a pot within a pot within a pot, and I had the green one in the bottom part, the yellow one in the middle part, and the, the um, white one in the top. So we had tumbling, and it looks absolutely splendid. So if anybody wants to try that, it's very, very easy. All you need is one plant of each. You pull it apart, pop it into some soil lightly, and it just grows. I've got the yellow one, um, yellow variegated one, in my kitchen courtyard as ground cover. It, it's in the shade. It's bright lime green, and it just looks lovely. Um, somebody told me the other day they thought I was an idiot for putting it there because I regret it because it will never, it will never um, go away once you've got it. But It does ruin know, like Billy-O. <laughs> yeah, but there are some things you live with because you love them. Um and some that you don't. So that's why people get divorced, I guess. <laughs> um, Tom, as ever, really lovely plants. You mentioned that the um, Salaginella's fern, like we know from his podcast, he adores all things ferny. So no surprise, there are spleniums, ethereums, blechnums, dryopteris, uh, polystichum, and Cyathea cooperi as well in his garden. So ferns of every shape and size. Didn't see any blechnum chilense used in, um, in Chelsea, actually. I wonder whether there's a, a missed opportunity there because Blechnum chilense is a fantastic fern. I know that in Devon, the fern, fern fronds on Blechnum chilense can grow to about five feet long. Now, that is something I would love to see, and I haven't seen it at Chelsea. Now, we know we get all these various gardens, and we'll come to some of those in a minute, which did, do uh, they have a piece of landscape from somewhere else. The nearest we ever got to looking like Devon, I think, was when I think it was Dan Pearson did the Chatsworth Garden. Um, with big, big rocks. And I mean, and it, all you need is a tumbling waterfall and some of these black and chilense from Devon with five feet long fronds. And it would have been absolutely fantastic. Yeah. You need very little else except for some something dripping a bit and a bit of moss, you know, and all of all the kind of things that grow on these mossy crevices, which are so just so, so lovely. Oh, it's such a marvellous fern. It's really looking stunning on my patio. It's made all the difference. So thank you for giving me that one, Alan. That's uh, all right. Also... Yeah, window at the moment. My fronds in dry old Norfolk here are about a metre tall. They're not five feet, <laughs> but, um, you know. One day. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there were some lovely anemone. Is it Lavellii? I never know how to say yes. it. They were gorgeous in, uh, in Tom's garden. Lovely primulas as well. And his multi-stemmed Acer Davidii, a gorgeous cornice. 
Multi-stemmed trees, Alan. That was a theme that we spotted as we uh, walked up Main Avenue. It's been, gathering, it's been gathering momentum. And I rather feel that all these multi-stemmed trees have had their day. <laughs> and I will tell you why. Um, because, <laughs> well, there are certain... It, when these things, uh, these plants, or when anything is used, over overused, it becomes ubiquitous. And, you know, where we once loved them, we then tend to start despising them in a funny sort of way. And it's largely caused because they're used in municipal plantings. Mm. Um, and I've seen them used outside DIY stores where they've got a big piece of grass and the entrance way in and they, they don't want to fill it with just anything. So they plant multi-stem silver birches. And I think lovely as they are, I, I would want for myself personally, something a little different, but I don't think was, I mean, there were lots of multi-stem trees, but they weren't all silver birches. No, I, I think you're right. Multi-stem silver birches, I probably have seen too much of, but there were some lovely other multi-stem trees. And I'm, mm. I'll am i confess, I'm not great on tree identification, particularly on a rubbish photo taken from a distance at Chelsea. <laughs> so I don't know what all of them were, but there, there were some really inspiring ones dotted along Main Avenue. Well, I think we had a conversation, did we not, when we were talking about multi-stem trees, and I said that one plant that I would love to make into a multi-stem tree is, is the, um, I can't remember the name of it now. The Judas tree. Yeah, the Judas tree. Um, and I had seen it done years ago in Beth Chateau's garden at White Barn in Essex, and I loved it. And I thought, well, why haven't I ever done it? And the, one, the nearest I've got to it is planting a group of three together because I couldn't find anything that would multi-stem. So I bunged three in a hole together, so we've got three stems. And the, the great way of doing these trees and creating these trees is to let them have multi-stems and then to raise the canopy on each stem so that you and it gives the ability to look through the stems you've got your greenery above and you look through the stem so in a small garden you, this will give you the possibility of being able to take a glimpse through which is so important it's absolutely lovely in the same way that if you prune your bamboos and a lot of people don't bother but if you do on an annual basis take the old culms out down at ground level you then get to see through and it's like it's almost like seeing through net curtains it's a it's a lovely a lovely um it's another perspective in the garden isn't it I had uh, enough Judas tree flomo before you went talking about multi-stemmed versions. Um, <laughs> talking of multi-stemmed birches, as we were, Sarah Eberlay, that's how I'm pronouncing it. I don't know if that's how you say it, <laughs> but I'm going with that one. Um, she had a multi-stem birch in her Building the Future garden. And I'm not really one who's there for that hard landscaping, but that massive sort of six metre high building with this water cascading off it out of those sort of um well, they look like girders didn't they, yes, they look girders. like girders. yeah but they, yeah. they were not actually they were they're were, they were made with made of something like mdf mm. density fiberboard but this is what this is one that's produced for outside and it did have that wonderful sort of as you said about the waterfall cascading i'm not so sure that i would like that in my garden all the time because it's too noisy <laughs> um i but, agree um, in a small space like that, I mean, it, it, it's, this is the thing about Chelsea, isn't it? You've got to get an idea into that small space. She got the idea into that small space um, and she'd created this monolithic, really, waterfall in this tiny space, which was too big for the space, I suppose. But if you actually, if you take your mind and erase the factors in that small space, it could be in a larger space, then it was absolutely stunning. And I think to use this rusty looking I mean, I don't like anything that looks rusty because to my mind, somehow or other, that rusty equals neglected. 
Um, and I always feel somehow rather that it needs painting. Um, <laughs> we'll agree to disagree on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, that's fine. That's what we should do. This is what encourages debate, isn't it? And 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 refines ideas, which means that I will eventually per- per- eventually persuade you that I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> However. Um, it was an incredible feat uh, to do that, I think. And a great way of showing off. I mean, that was her sponsor, a great way of showing off this this new material that they wanted to yeah. showcase. So Absolutely. I just hate to think how many pumps you needed to get that water up there with such force, because I know that in our fountain in the exotic garden, which is designed by Giles Rayner, somebody else we met when we were at Chelsea, um, and... It actually has three pumps, three big pumps to get the water up there. Um, so, you know, the the running costs of these things, although they're, they're lovely, we tend to forget they're not all gravity fed unless you live somewhere in the Yorkshire Dales where you've got a reservoir on top of the hill and it can force the water yeah. down you and turn it up like they have at Chatsworth, for instance. Um, it's going to be expensive to run. Uh, Sarah Eberle did have some lovely naturalistic planting and I don't think I spent enough time really pouring over the plants in there. I looked through the plant list and there were lots of lovely euphorbias and acanthus and iris. I did see uh, Lamia morvala, which I adore. So I'm always on the lookout for that because I just think it's an underused plant. It was well, it wasn't at Chelsea, was it? No, it, was it wasn't at Chelsea this year. <laughs> <laughs> underused sort of. I don't it, know why you don't see it in garden centres and things, but certainly at Chelsea, the designers had hit upon Lamia morvala. Well, I think probably it's, it's some of the, uh, the nurseries that grow for the, for, the, for the Chelsea gardens, I think. And, uh, you know, they tend to have three, three, two or three specialist growers with Chelsea gardens. And that's probably why they all look quite similar in a way. Um, and I prefer to see some of the... Uh, well, I would prefer... If somebody asked me to do a garden at Chelsea, I'd want to source my own plants from wherever I want them from. Um, because I think that's... It, you get the individuality then. You get something slightly different, slightly... Five years ago, somebody used uh, Lamium ovala. Five years later, everybody's using Lamium ovala because it was different and it, it, it evoked the, the good things. The, the surprise element, I suppose, of, of a different plant. Um, but it was an edge of, edge of woodland garden, really, wasn't it? So um, we could have anything that grows on the edge of, edge of woodland. And I would have liked to have seen, actually, a few more different foxgloves there. Um, because the Foxglove Nursery, who did have a stand inside the Grand Pavilion, um, if, if you when you see them all grown together as different varieties and you appreciate the different heights, the different shapes, the different sizes, the different colours, it is phenomenal. I mean, people tend to think a Foxglove is a Foxglove is a Foxglove, but, you know, there are so many different mm. ones. Uh, well worth a look at. My favourite at the moment is a perennial variety, and it's called Glory of Roundway. Um <laughs> It's pink and cream, um, and it has masses, ma- you know, lots and lots of small spikes of small gloves. And I think that is a stunner. Oh, wow. Yes, I want that one. Um, there were some lovely, uh, lovely fox gloves that we'll come to in a bit. Uh, Lamia Mulvala, talking of it being in multiple places, was also... <laughs> come on as milk, love. Come on as milk. <laughs> it was also in the Brew and Dolphin Garden by Paul Hervey Brooks who also had some multi-stem birches. Um, the whole idea of that one was about rehabilitating polluted soils. It was supposed to be a kind of brownfield site where lots of pioneer species had uh, had seeded in and then there were lots of plants to help rehabilitate the soil because 
I think the point was lots of us are moving into houses that are built on really awful soil. And so people need to know how to cope with it and what to plant. So there's a good idea there. I think there was also the point of not, of not interfering with the soil too much. Yeah. And allowing this thing to happen naturally, allowing the soil to gradually come back. I mean, you can encourage this with the various means of mulching and adding and this and that. But the idea that Paul had, I think, was to actually leave it to naturally do it itself. Yeah. And I mean, that was a very innovative garden in actual fact. I love the deep pond. Did you did you did you hear that Angelie Harriet's sister fell in a pond? I hope, I hope it wasn't that one because that was very deep. Very deep. Well, <laughs> there were some really interesting ideas. The, the fact that they bothered to make a ground fridge one and a half meters underground complete with preserves in jars I quite like the attention to detail and I'm sure somebody would be interested in making a kind of eco ground fridge so there's an idea that I personally won't be taking back but somebody might it's much like going back to the 18th century when people made ice houses isn't it you you had this kind of brick building and you went below soil level and you used to harvest ice in the in the winter um, when we had freezing conditions and and put it into this store so that you could make extravagant desserts and amongst other things or even a G&T with ice in the summer in England before the refrigerator was actually thought of. I think what I liked about this garden was that it was very wild. You had lots of white, lots of white and pink ragged robin, that little lickness, I can't say it anyway, that one. Cuscali. There we go. (laughs) Ragged robin, I'll stick with that. So lots of that, lots of aquilegias actually the aquilegias didn't look massively wild so there were kind of cultivated elements and there were i think combinations that you could imagine using in your own garden and a lovely use of the basket what color was the aquilegia i can't remember i feel like it was kind of it was quite a big headed maybe a pink and white something like that well you know they do in actual fact i mean i know what you mean when you say it's not not like a wild flower but if you actually if you went back to 50 years so old cottage gardens you would see granny's bonnets or aquilegias or columbines as they're called you would see them in all shapes and sizes and they were always in that kind of uh, spectrum of purples pinks pales pale yeah. pinks they didn't you did we didn't have bright whites in those days and we didn't have the strong blues that you've got now and i don't think we also had the reds because the reds cut must come from the uh, americas where they, they have an, um, a naturalized wild red aquilegia so an awful lot of breeding has been done in those and they probably started with the makana hybrids where they had um, longer spurs, bigger open flowers, and all those kind of things. But I mean, aquilegias will, if you leave them alone, they will self-sow and yeah. regenerate. Well, yeah, and, and, and they tend to go back to the, those original sort of colours. And I think a great plant, you know, if you're trying to inspire people with easy things that will self-seed around and do well on that kind of soil, then then great. And and this was another garden, and we haven't mentioned it yet, but Rosa Glauca was used in profusion. <laughs> And and used really well. And it's so funny. It's like they've been listening to Ian Roof raving <laughs> on our podcast. Yeah, but I mean, the, the great thing is that Rosa Glauca, in actual fact, it, it the birds sew it around because the birds take the hips that it has. It has these little pink flowers, single pink flowers with a white art to them. Um, quite a dark pink and then they get these lovely mahogany hips and because the birds eventually take them in the winter, um, in the autumn and the winter when they're ripe and they eat them and because the seeds pop out the other end and they and the and they'll germinate wherever the ro- where, wherever the bird has been um we have self-sown seedlings in the garden here and i frequently pop them up and use them around but i've recent years in recent years i haven't used it that much but seeing it in chelsea although we saw it in quite a lot of lot of gardens it, it did remind me of its usefulness and that unique glaucous coloring is stunning and the flowers they really pop against the foliage and i think my favorite use of it 
was in Andy Sturgeon's Garden for Mind. He used more of it, I think, than anybody else. And he it was, it was quite a sort of naturalistic planting. And he did have these multi-stemmed birches. He had lots of baptisia, which is another plant that cropped up quite a lot. And I think you you said, as we were sort of looking around, that it's probably because there's been so much breeding work with baptisias. Yes, there has. I mean, you were getting uh, twilight purple smoke Dutch chocolate years ago. You used to get just probably blue. And I think there was a lemon, a lemon variety. And I don't know where the breeding work has been done, but I would I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't in uh, the USA mm. um, for some reason. I don't know why I think that, but I wouldn't be surprised. But yes, they've, and they're in, co- in colour combinations. I think I said to you, Thordis, regarding Dutch chocolate, I said to you that I would never have bought this from description alone. And then having seen it, what did I say? Do you want it? <laughs> <laughs> you want exactly. To do you think it was also what Andy Sturgeon does so well and did so well is these combinations. He had this sort of wild planting that, you know, whether or not you like it or not, there was a lot of naturalistic planting and there had been, I think, an encouragement for designers to, to plant naturalistically. And he'd used Leucanthemum vulgare and he'd used Euphorbia palustris and all these pulsatilla seed heads. And you had this sort of wild thing going on, you know, Rosa Glauca, et cetera. But there were still so many combinations that I felt like I wanted to take home and put in my garden, like that Baptisia, and I think he put it with the euphorbia and the, the play between the sort of limey, yellowy punch of the euphorbia with the yellow in that sort of chocolate spike was wonderful and made it really brought out all the beauty of the baptisia. Well, I've, I have long had um, a thought, and that is that if you don't worry about colours clashing, providing you can put lime green between them, because if you do, it's a, it, it, it just mixes them, to, it brings it together. Yeah, um, yeah. Somehow the highlights, the pops of lime green. And I think I've noticed this in, um, in floral art, for instance, when, when people put pops of lime green in. And then, I mean, we've gradually got it into our gardens here with you talking about euphorbias with that, that wonderful colour. There is, of course, um, that wonderful biennial thing. Smyrnium. Oh, so yeah. much Smyrnium in your garden. Oh, <laughs> die for. And, and then, of course, you've got all the lovely greens, like, like we've got green zinnias called Envy, and we've got green, um, what's the other thing we use a lot of? Nicotiana. Oh, yes. Which, incidentally, I'm giving a rest from Nicotiana in the garden because we have this mildew that gets on the foliage and it just makes it look horrid. And if you spot it in your garden, I'll give you a little tip, because if you spot it on a, on a Nicotiana in your garden, don't try and get it right. Just get rid of the plants out and get rid of them and don't grow them for at least three years, because hopefully after three years, the mildew would have gone somewhere else. Maybe I don't know where, but hopefully you'll then be able to grow them again. And a similar thing happened years ago when we used to have antirrhinum rust. And I've got a lovely antirrhinum flowering in the garden at the moment. It's in the sunk garden. It's by the edge of a pond. It's a self-sown seedling. I haven't grown antirrhinums here for years, but it appeared two years ago. And I let it flower. It's, it's a dark leaf form with very dark red flowers. And I looked at it last night when I got back home here. And I just looked at it and thought, wow, I do love you. I'm going to let, let you set a little bit of seed this year. Um, and hopefully it will come true because there's no other antirrhinums around it. It's one of my happiest things in my garden, which I came to. And the front garden was as barren as possible. It had one conifer and the soil had been compacted and covered with membrane and covered with a deep layer of stone so that nothing could grow. And um, I dug it all up and tried to sort it out and planted it up. And 
antirhinums just started appearing. And so I get, I've never grown an antirhinum. Well, I've grown one antirhinum in the back garden, but I've never sown any. And they just turn up every year in a whole, not quite rainbow of shades, but you know, wonderful dark pinks and pale pinks. And but lemons. They, are, they are quite, they can be quite perennial if they're dry at the root during the winter. Because yes. Behind Norwich Cathedral, there's a lovely old wall. It's a very tall wall and there's two plants that grow in it and have been growing there for years. They grow into the lime mortar and they love it. One is antirhinums, the other is wallflowers. And the wallflowers over the years have got this virus. So the, the flowers, when they come out, I mean, the whole plant is stunted because of the lack of nutrition. But the flowers, when they come out, they're striped brown and yellow, cream and white and pink and all the rest of it. It's lovely. Oh, marvellous. Um, Andy Sturgeon gave me so many ideas for planting combinations. He had that lovely little campanula patula with Verbena bampton, and it was surrounded. Is it a, a cana microphylla? I'm not sure how to say it. A senior. Lovely little serrated edge leaves doing mm. that carpeting thing that we talked about with Selaginella, but in a sort of more subtle less this is way. this is a plant you can grow in full sun and it colors up beautifully and i mean there's there are gray leaf forms of it and there are bronze leaf forms of it and they both color better um when they're planted in sun campanula patula is a, is a little annual that i used to grow years ago and the only reason i grew it is because i saw it growing at dixter when christo was alive and i just loved it and it's such a delicate little thing and you really just uh, when you're growing it in your own garden just sprinkle the seed very carefully and give it a little riffle and and tuck it in and make sure that you water it and then it will pop up and it would just weave amongst other plants that's what the beauty of it and it has well, the kind of color of a corn cockle almost yeah. i mean really really pretty and you can imagine that with the toning of babina bampton and then the acana had those little sort of red burrs on it which kind of echoed the pulsatilla seed head so you got these little fuzzy pops here and there i think what i loved about andy sturgeon's garden is when you really looked at it for a long time you just kept seeing more and more detail and more and more plants that I was excited about. Yeah. Um, he had that the Rosa Glauca was with Steeper Gigantia and that was a lovely combo. Uh, Schultzia um, Ivory Castle was combined with Salvia Violette de Loire. So you've got the cream just playing with those lovely dark stems and calices of the of the Salvia. I think as a hardy annual in a sunny spot, a Schultzias or the Californian poppy is very hard to uh, not to like. Yeah. This was the cream form, as, you, as you've said, called Ivory Castle, but you can get them in separate colours. Um, the only problem with them is, and that it is that sometimes the separate colours, which have been bred to be that colour, sometimes if the self-sown seedlings are allowed to develop, they gradually become yellow, then orange, and then, you know, they go back to what they were meant to be. Um, but the, we have them self-seeding in the desert here and they're just such joyous yeah. plants to grow but if you want a certain scheme you're going to have to get the the plain colors in separate packets and do it for yourself but they are very easy they are three years old in my garden and they just come back the ivory also flowers earlier than the other you know tie chiffon silk mixes whatever they're called all of those yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the ivory ones they the and i highfalutin <laughs> And I have them with Royal Bumble and it is not a planned combination, but I absolutely love it. And I love them so much. And this is comedy, but I deadhead them individually, <laughs> uh, which I know you can only do if you have a garden as small as mine, but it pays well, off. They true, flower yeah. and flower. I mean, life's too short to stuff a mushroom. So, you, you know, you've got to ration your time, haven't you? <laughs> but I also find it really therapeutic going out and doing things like tidying up the salvia and deadheading the, the uh, California poppy. So I do things like that. Um, the looking through my photos from Andy Sturgeon's garden, well, looking through my photos from Chelsea, Papa Lauren's grape, it like 
screams out of the photo gallery on your phone. It is such an intense pop of colour. I must use that in future. I think you probably already have that at, the, at East Ruston. Yes, yes. But I mean, I think it, the seeing it used in Andy's garden, I mean, the plants had obviously been grown in pots to be, be placed the way they were placed. And I mean, they're relative. It's Papavus somniferum. It's a hardy annual. It has lovely glaucous foliage. And it, the Lawrence grape is a single variety with these great globes of this oh, almost the colour of dried blood, I suppose, purple brown almost colour um, with a shriek of lime green in the centre. I just loved it. And if you want to grow these in and be able to transplant them, because naturally you would broadcast the seed and they would grow where you put the seed. Um, but what I do with lots of hardy annual papavas, um, I sow them in cell trays. So I scatter the seed very lightly over the top of the cell tray and then they, they germinate. And I wait until the cells are full of roots and then I pop the root, the cell out from the bottom, put it into a pot. No root disturbance. The poppies don't even notice what's happening to them. But within three to five weeks, you've got a lovely, stonking, healthy plant to put wherever you want in the garden. And it's, it's just a lovely way of using them. I think I'm going to have to do that with Lawrence Grape. Another pop from Gladiolus bizantinus and Echium red feather. That was a nice thing to see. I'm not sure that was used in any other garden. You know, Gladiolus bizantinus, we would probably think of that as being from South Africa, which it is, um, as being maybe a slightly frost prone in, in certain gardens. But Granny Gray, my grandmother, grew it in her clay garden in South Norfolk. Um, and it, it used to migrate. It's, it's stoloniferous, so it makes a stolon that creeps underneath the ground and up pops another one. And plus the fact, if you're digging and weeding, you dig them up and you push them back in the ground where they are. Um, they're absolutely lovely things. And I think there's a possibility that they might be uh, a candidate for growing in a naturalistic area where you, where perhaps you grow plants like a cornflower mix of seed. Oh. So if you've got a if you've got a cornflower mix of seed that you can sow over where your um, gladiolus byzantinus are growing, they look stunning. And I have seen them com combined in grass, but I don't think they would stand the competition of a, a of a meadow, a true meadow, say. But I mean, where the where the grass is sparse, did you like that? <laughs> <laughs> they might thrive. That sounds marvellous. Echim red feather was lovely. I don't know that Echim at all, um, but I just thought that that looked absolutely stunning. And Echims, again, you can you could do it the same way with them, sell sow them and then pot them on and use them where you want. Centranthus ruba var cochineus was another. I hadn't even spotted that until I looked in the photos. That was another lovely little pop of colour. And I just kept zooming in and seeing more. But Blurum longifolium aureum was also in the mix. It, I just thought it was a lovely planting. Well, you know that Centranthus has a bad reputation because people see it on railway embankments because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a almost incontinent in the way that it self sows everywhere, um, and it does do that. But again, it's it's one of those plants that was growing in the wall behind Norwich Cathedral. Yeah. So it you know it's it's a it's a plant that's worth growing, I think, um, but you've got to edit it down to and keep it where you want it. But I love the colour of it. Uh, centauria, I, you know, centaurias take me back to my grandmother as well. I've got the blue one in the garden here. It's flowering away. We get three bursts of flower from it each season because what we do and what she used to do is the old, this is the, the hardy perennial blue corn flower. Um, she used to cut it down immediately at flower to ground level um, and sprinkle some soil over the top and a bit of, um, well, we probably had chicken manure because she kept chickens. 
and give it a jolly good watering and then it comes up and it does its thing again. You can do that three times throughout the season, but don't wait to, for it to be fully over before you cut it back. Harden your heart when you've still got a few blooms left on it. Hack it to the ground. You won't regret it. I'm going to do that. I am 100% going to do that. Um, Centuria Geordie was what Andy Sturgeon had used. That one did crop up a couple of times in other gardens. It's a lovely dark purple one that I think Ian mentioned. I swear these designers, they had some sort of prescient Ian Roof moment and they picked all these plants from his podcast. Um, we saw, there was so, I mean, there are so many marvellous plants to talk about. The Morrison Co-Garden by Ruth Wilmot was fine, was lovely, but to be honest, it was, I loved it mostly for that rose that we saw, which I had to go and scour through the plant list immediately to try and track down because I must have it. And it's Jacqueline Dupre. Is that what, the single one? Yeah, what a charmer. This was a wonderful thing. I'm, I'm, I'm very into single roses. I've just planted a variety called Dusky Maiden, which is politically incorrect, of course. Um, but it is a, a single flower, dusky red variety with lots of brown in it. And it does orange stamens in the middle, yellow orange stamens in the middle. I think it's lovely. In Jacqueline Dupre, it has, it's a big flower. It's a white flower verging with a little flash of pink in it, I suppose. And it has that beguiling, beguiling red eye, which I just found irresistible. Um, it's That's good, definitely on my list. And when the petals fall away, you got left with these lovely little fuzzy red bosses. So these little sort right. of red pom-poms. Yeah. So it, it gave you, I mean, I've no idea what it does hips wise, whether it's got good hips or not, but it's uh, <laughs> it was just absolutely beautiful. I will 100% be buying that as soon as I possibly can. And there were lovely plants. So Jacqueline Dupre was alongside Anchusa Loden Royalist, Gia Mai Tai, Iris Blue Rhythm, Salvia Nemorosa Crystal Blue or Blue Hills or both, Aqualegia Ruby Port and uh, Breeza Media, the Quaking Grass. I think there were Limousi as well as just plain Breeza Media. And then they had the same combination, but with peony dark eyes. And you can imagine, you know, if you know those plants, all of those lovely peachy shades and lilacs and blues. And it, yeah, it was really, really pretty. Bear in mind, if you're going to use that, and, and the peony dark eyes has a, has a limited season, so you need to perhaps think of um, think of getting something like Cosmos Rebenza to go there after the peony's finished or before the peony's finished, just to carry on that theme. Yeah, absolutely. And they were obviously all colours picked to be in that kind of Morris palette. So mm. they'd, Ruth had absolutely done her, her job with that. And these lovely bronzy tones picked up, up by uh, the Bascom Petra, which is very pretty. And then there were cooler plantings as well. So there was white camassia paired with Luzula under the trees. Well, and that, that, that's really a nice thing because it, it, we're getting back to the white garden theme, possibly. And, you know, if you think under trees, but lower light levels. Yes. And the white garden at Sissinger is famous, beyond famous in actual fact, but it was called the white garden. Well, it is the white garden. But it was it was made because Harold and Vita Sackville West, who lived there, they used to be writing in their respective rooms and they would meet and walk through that garden up to another house, if you like, on the estate for supper. And so they walked through, through that garden in the gloaming as the light's going down. And you can just imagine the sort of cream honeysuckles in there and everything oozing that scent as they go through. Fabulous. Yeah, and they were really pretty under the trees. Uh, and also Amsonia, Tabernay Montana storm cloud, which really did look like little puffs, like little wisps of cloud under the trees or those lovely little starry pale blue flowers. So that was very pretty. Don't forget Amsonia's from last year at Chelsea. They had the one, this wonderful, wonderful autumn colouring. Yes. When they look like butter bushes, the colour of a good, rich Jersey butter or Guernsey butter. Um, lovely, lovely look. I those, think. Um, 
multiple mm. seasons of interest around Sonia. Um, there was, I thought it was a bit comedy really. And I'm, who am I to judge? Cause I'm not a Chelsea designer, but they had, they obviously wanted to have a, a climbing rose. So they had, I think rambling rector, which looked a bit like it just been thrown at that multi-stem tree. I think it was a dwarf version of Rambling Rector, actually, in actual fact. But I mean, I don't know what the rose was, but I can understand them wanted to put the climbing rose through the uh, multi-stem tree right at the front of the stand. But it did look very self-conscious. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, multi-stem trees continued in Chris Beardshaw's R&LI garden. Again, I don't think I spent enough time really paying attention to the planting. It was very luscious, very bountiful irises and flomus and circiums and salvias and bactisia what i did notice that lovely galactites um that yeah. we were sort of it was like, funny i think yeah well normally that's that we normally see that in pink but but brian ellis a great friend of both of us he gave me some white well he gave me three plants said there might be a white one amongst them they were all white and i've got them in the garden and they they where they where they are separated from the other form they sell so true to so that I've, you know i get regularly get the white one which is absolutely lovely and i mean it's one of those plants that I think it's almost its best values throughout the wintertime because it, if you sow the seed in the autumn, it germinates and it gradually makes this starfish, which spreads across the soil and it's dark green and silver patterning on this starfish is wonderful uh, winter decoration. And then, of course, it comes up to flower and it flowers about now, about May, June, and it has these lovely thistly heads on. I find the pink forms rather dirty looking, but I think the, the white flowered one with the foliage having the white markings in it it's absolutely ace it was funny because uh peter was looking through my photos um we were on the phone and he was looking through um you know the the cloud and he said uh you, you seem to have taken a lot of photos of a thistle <laughs> <laughs> you've got a bit stuck on this thistle <laughs> i really like alectitis i took a lot of photos of it um <laughs> Then next up, the perennial garden by Richard Myers, one of the gardens we were lucky enough to go into. And boy, oh boy, doesn't it change your perspective when you go into the garden? Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, the, the, the I went, well, we were invited by perennial uh, to their, um, their, their dinner later in the evening. So Graham and I were lucky enough to go back and go into that garden. And I have to say it was wonderful as the light went down, the colours changed and the whites and creams lit up and it was it was absolutely beautiful um and i think that if you if you're looking at the quality of the finish of a garden that that one one hands down the stonework in that garden the, the paths and the stonework and the rill were absolutely immaculate and you know i've got a thing about rills but i mean never mind <laughs> they won you over with your with their rill <laughs> well, I, I think i think lots of people would probably look at the perennial gardens oh god no not another rill but a rill in a funny sort of way is it's more, much more economical to run if you want to have mechanical driven water um a small pump you know taking it from the where it drops down underground and under the piping up to the top again um, and it just continually running. And I just think it's just lovely. I don't think you need anything. I mean, lots of people miss Gertrude Jekyll, for instance, she used to use rills everywhere. They're not new by any means. Um, and she would make little sort of beds off the side of the rill and plant them with water irises mm. and other, other water loving plants, which is lovely, but that's further, meaning you've got to ma maintain it even further. But just that, I have this thing, I saw it in Spain. I think it was at the Alhambra where they have um, steps and you walk up the steps, but either side of the steps, there's little rills coming down, that little waterfalls, and it goes down and underneath the steps and then into a main rill that runs the length of the garden. I just thought that was lovely, and I've always wanted to play with water like that. I think it's, it's, 
uh, well, it's just it was an ideal evening mm. garden. Mm. Come out after work, the bottle of wine outside at the end of the garden, sitting on the terrace, looking back. Oh, it was just dreamy. I think I wish I got to see it in the night because I think for me, as someone who just loves colour and sort of as many as possible, really, the fact that they'd been so restrained, rightly so, with their palette, which was white basically white and plum and green was a bit hard for me to kind of get excited about once we walked in there and I could really see all the planting that wonderful chamomile lawn that was either side of the rill and just these clever use of lines so you had the rill lots of sort of spikes of plants so you know delphiniums and, and white allium spikes so there were all these lines interplaying the the hawthorn wasn't it that was trained to be like a little flat roof so you got the straight lines of their trunks and then this flat layer of uh, of shadow what, what a lovely way to have everything to have in the garden i mean yeah. you know why buy a parasol for lots of money to serve your patio table have a living one and yeah. you know you can make it out of lots of things you can make it out of wisteria for instance or a london plane i've seen it done with those but i mean a native tree hawthorn well it might not be native i'm not sure about that but there's enough of it in our hedgerows <laughs> but to actually grow it as, as a flat top um thing would be absolutely lovely but the only thing i did worry about was birds sitting in yes. it <laughs> Well, I suppose it was quite narrow. So if you let it get yeah, too hedge-like, they'd get in there. <laughs> I could see the ring doves. I mean, we've got ring doves in the garden here, and I'd just love to see them. Uh, but they, they, there was about six inches. That would be enough for them to nest in, and they would love it. Yeah, the pigeon nest likes to nest. sit by my roses and um, poop on their leaves. It is sad. Oh. <laughs> the, um, the nice thing as well is, in contrast to all those straight lines, you've got another multi-stem tree, but this time not, not a birch, a Persian ironwood, a Protea persica. So I thought that was lovely and I'd be very interested in trying that. And then also all these clipped domes of yew. There was the Portuguese laurel as well that I know caught your eye and they brought a softness and a roundness in contrast to all of those verticals. Well, normally all those sort of rounded shapes, we would see topiarized box being used, but of course box is now um, on lots of people's blacklist because of the box, box moth caterpillar and of course box blight. And I'm, I'm afraid it's off my list. It's gradually we're replacing it in the garden here with other things. But it was nice to see that they use Portuguese laurel um, as these lovely little soft cushions, which is a different shape and different form. And it was lovely. It was dark green. It was glossy. The new growth was much lighter. And um, I, sp <laughs> I actually spoke to Richard, uh, Richard Myers, the designer about it. And he did say, um, they're just about to have their tips pinched out. And I thought, gosh, can you imagine pinching the tips of all those little shoots? And if you want it to look um, uncut and neat at the same time, I'm afraid you do have to pinch the tips out. But it's 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 a bit of a labour of love, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but they had, and they had two nice um, round dollops of you at the end behind the seat, which I thought was lovely. Um, Parotia persica, of course, the Persian ironwood, that um, is not showing you the best of its season at the moment because the best of its season is in the autumn when it has yes. most fabulous, yeah. fabulous colouring. And, and I do it, love the flowers as well, those yes. wonderful jewels. Oh. Yes, there's flowers in early spring. I mean, late winter, early spring, little like little rubies glistening yeah. the branches. They're absolutely lovely. They're not showy, they're not bold, but they have discreet value. <laughs> Another one I would like to have multi-stemmed. And the purple-white theme had allowed them to sort of introduce, I suppose when you when you narrow it down, you start looking at interesting plants and they had that marvellous Centuria Purple Heart, which I was particularly proud about and pleased about because I grow that, got it from Richard Hobbs and love it. So purple and white Centuria. And that Lupin, which I think was Masterpiece, 
was just heavenlies, the most rich, opulent shades. Yeah, I mean, that that was the, uh, it was like, they were like purple prongs, weren't they? Standing up and through this garden. I, I just loved them. I thought they were absolutely wonderful. And of course, they'd use plants like the little gladiolus, the bride, mm. uh, gladiolus nanus, which means nanus means dwarf, which is a lovely little thing just to plant that. And I mean, I, I would always say to people, if you if you grow gladiolus nanus in, in the garden, stick a row in the vegetable garden or your cutting garden because you'll love it. It picks beautifully and it is a wonderful cut flower. Yeah. Um, amazingly, we've been through all these gardens. We haven't actually talked about the one that won Best in Show yet. Um, well, it, wasn't, which... it wasn't a garden, was it? <laughs> well, and I suppose that's why we've come to it last. The Rewilding Britain Landscape by Lucy Eckhart and Adam Hunt. It was beautiful. It was clever. And I see why it did so well, because it is bloody hard. I'd, I've never tried it, but to plant something that looks that much like it's grown there, a bit like you mentioned Dan Pearson and his chats with landscape, it's wonderful, but I didn't really feel like I was taking away lots of ideas for my own garden. And I suppose that's because I'm so obsessed with plants that I want to garden differently. Maybe if you're someone who really does want to create a wilderness, an actual wilderness, then you were getting ideas from it. But for me personally, I wasn't getting lots of, of planty ideas, but it was, it was very clever and very well done. I thought it was absolutely excellent. And I think that the Royal Horticultural Society should have another category and it should be for a landscape category because that's what it was. It was a landscape. I mean, you couldn't practically use this garden as a garden. I mean, well, you wouldn't get beavers there for a start, would you? Were they beavers? Were they beavers? They were beavers. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I must say, because they had a soundtrack playing and I kept thinking, what's that funny sound? And I think it was a beaver mewing. Oh, well, that's what it was. I, I thought you were ill. I mean, <laughs> well, excited. Beavers that are that friendly, you'd open your back door and say, Beaver, <laughs> no, you wouldn't. Um, it was beautifully executed. I, I loved it for the for all of the reasons that you just said, Thordis. But for me, it was not a garden. Um, and I, I, I did like the, <laughs> the Daily Telegraph had a feature on it this morning, and it just says how Chelsea got lost in the weeds. Well, there is... There is some truth in that. Um, and, you know, rewilding is a wonderful thing and a, and a very practical thing that we, we probably encourage people to do. I mean, we do it here on the outer uh, reaches of the garden. And, you know, we leave the nettles for the butterflies and stuff like that. And, and you know, in areas where there's bramble so that all these little things that, you know, the animals, wildlife in general can use and utilise. And it is important for that. Um, but I don't think that this garden um which was called a, a rewilding british landscape now there you see that says it all it's not a garden i rest my case <laughs> but congratulations to them for what they did and i think it it i think if you'd been in a landscape thing it would have still won the best in show yeah. oh yeah you know there should be a separate category for this and a separate category for gardens and if i could take one part of it home to use in my own garden as a little rewilded bit they had this gorgeous dry stone wall which I think yeah. was made with Exmoor stone and and on top of it they had a tree and underneath that tree they had foxgloves and purple aquilegias and grasses and cow parsley and I just wanted to go like I wanted as a little girl to just go and sort of sit in the midst of that and hear the bees buzzing and it, it well it, sure you know you wanted to go and visit the fairies that's what yes. you want yes it was like a little fairy dell in the corner. And if I could have just picked that up and put that in my garden, I would have had that 100%. It, it was wonderful and it did win best in show, but I don't think it was your best in show, Alan. 
No, it wasn't. I mean, my best in show was the perennial garden, I have to say, um, in spite of the fact that the, pl the planting was rather safe. And I spoke to um, Richard Myers, the designer, and he said I wanted the planting to be um, made with uh, plants that are available to the general public so that they could go out and buy the plants if that's what they wanted it wanted. I didn't want it for the planting, although the planting was lovely, especially in the evening. I loved it for that. I wanted it for that rill. <laughs> The real, the steps and the stonework, I just found so pleasing and so lovely. And I, I have a real envy. <laughs> For me, as you probably noticed by how enthused I got by Andy Sturgeon's planting, it was the mind garden. Funnily enough, I've just realised I didn't even mention all of his, um, his concrete because I wasn't interested in it at all. I'm sure that tonally it was lovely with the plants, but I, the reason you know I... <laughs> It's poured concrete walls. I mean, it's a lovely thing to do. But do you know what it reminded me of? What? It reminded me of old ladies in wrinkly stockings. <laughs> well, maybe it's yeah. best we didn't talk about the walls. But <laughs> for me, when I got home and I was on the train and I was looking through all of the, the pictures and I just kept zooming in and seeing more plants that I want to grow or I have grown or I've forgotten that I like and the combinations were lovely and you wouldn't necessarily want your whole garden to look like it but I I just thought there was so much planty inspiration from Andy Sturgeon's garden so mm -hmm. so that is my best in show um but maybe not like if I could just take the planting and have that as the best in show maybe because I thought it was uh, it was lovely well, you wouldn't if knowing you, you wouldn't want all those walls. You'd want one or two. Yeah. Um, because you'd say they're taking up too much room and I can plant more plants. Yes, exactly. That is exactly it. Now, I don't know if you've got a particular FLOMO that stands out, uh, Alan. I'm looking back through, as you probably noticed from how long we've spoken, there are quite a lot of notes and they're literally all over my floor. I've just got paper everywhere. Well, you um, just chuck them down when you... <laughs> I've literally um. been chucking them on the floor. Um, I think that rose, Jacqueline Dupre, that's one of my Flomos. That's a Flomo for me, definitely. If you don't know, by the way, Flomo is that fear of missing out you get about a flower or a plant if you've never caught one of our podcasts before. Um, I mean, there's loads of it in here, but I didn't, there was one I missed out when I was talking about the pavilion. On Kevok stand, they had a little maidenhair fern. I have a lot of maidenhair fern Flomo, full stop, just for the plain one, but they had Adiantum, Aluticum, Imbricatum, little slender black stems, pinnate fronds of rich green and a little fern like that to shout out at you from a stand as beautiful as Kevok's. I think that says it all. I think you're absolutely right. My must have really was that 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 lovely clivia. Well, both of them. I mean, there was the, yes. there was the one called Pastel Greenheart and the other one called Hirao or Hirao. Um, and it, they both of those um, I just loved. So, yeah, they're mine. Marvellous. It was an inspiring Chelsea, as much for meeting so many wonderful people as for seeing all those plants. I hope you've enjoyed this chat. Please, you know, if you've got your own thoughts, your own comments, maybe you completely disagree with us. That is very welcome. Uh, just pop it in a comment and... Um, and hopefully, I, I do keep meaning to turn a newsletter out with some of this in, but I don't know if we'll get time. But maybe, you know, go and subscribe at getgardeningnow.co.uk and hopefully we'll manage to put some of this into a newsletter. But until next time, thank you for joining us for a quite long bonus edition of Talking Dirty. <laughs> and do remember that disagreement is healthy. Yes, it is, as we prove. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Happy gardening, everybody. Happy gardening, everybody. Bye-bye. Hey, Thordis here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. 
if you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favorite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favorite person, next time.